welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill, this is episode 278. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to everybody. It's a wet, dreary, cold day in May, of all times, as I'm recording this. The upside is I have an excuse for not being outside tending to the yard, and I'm instead inside talking to you people, so that's a good thing. But otherwise, it just feels weird for May. But, uh, what are you going to do? Play more games and talk to yourself into a microphone, I guess. I hope all is well where you are, and that your preferred weather option of choice is occurring right now. If you haven't already, head on over to the Patreon page for Atari Bytes, and check out a video of my first time playing Circus Convoy, the uh, new Audacity title that came out. I did a little short video of the first time I literally took the game out of the box and put it in and and fussed with it for a couple of minutes. Uh, So if you're curious, you can check that out. You don't have to be a Patreon supporter to see the video, but of course, I hope you'll consider it. So check it out. Let me know what you think. I would imagine someday Circus Convoy will show up on the podcast as a featured game, but I don't know when that day will be. Another reason why I am happy that it's rainy today is that Um, You know, the news recently came out that if you're vaccinated for COVID, you can run around topless, uh, meaning no face mask. And that just means, you know, now you're obligated to actually go places and do things. And, you know, when you're a homebody who's perfectly happy being at home, now there's all this pressure that, like, you have to go out and be around people and stuff. So, you know, who needs that pressure, man? I saw an article on TheGuardian.com titled, The 15 Greatest Video Games of the 70s, Ranked. From the simplicity of Pong's Two Bats and a Ball to Space Invaders' advancing ranks of aliens, the 70s saw the rise of a phenomenon that mesmerized the world. Very quickly here, Pong from 1972 comes in at 15, then Mattel Auto Race in 76, Computer Space from Nutting Associates, 1971. I don't know that one. Computer Space was the first commercially available video arcade game built by Atari founders Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney a year before the arrival of the much more successful Pong. It's a formative space shooter with the player battling two computer-controlled UFOs amid a rudimentary starscape, but it's the curvaceous fiberglass cabinet, which earned the game a cameo in the 1973 sci-fi movie Soylent Green. It's people! Good movie. That we'll always remember. Number 12, Seawolf from 76, Midway. Western Gun comes in at number 11. That's a 1975 Taito game. At number 10, The Oregon Trail, of course. 1971, Dan Rowich, Bill Heineman, and Paul Dillenberger. Who, alive since 1971, evidently, hasn't played Oregon Trail in school? I'm going to say nobody. Even my kids in the now, you know, well into the 2000s, played Oregon Trail in school. It's very different than when I played Oregon Trail in school in the, not 1971, a little bit later, you know, late 70s, early 80s, probably late 70s, when the fifth grade class had a fundraiser to buy one Apple II computer to be set up in the library for the students to use. One. One computer for the whole school. Although, I don't want to brag, but the fundraiser went so well. My class did such a good job. We were able to buy two Apple IIs. And you had to uh, you had to sign up for time, like during your free time during the day or after school, for like, I don't know, 20 minutes or half an hour or whatever the allotted time was. 
and you could go use this computer, and mostly what we did was play Oregon Trail, which was more or less just a text game at that point. So I am happy to see Oregon Trail on this list, because there's nothing that says childhood more than learning the concept of people dying from dysentery uh, on a lonely, dusty trail out in the middle of nowhere. Number nine, Mud, 1978, Roy Trubshaw, Richard Bartle. Programmed by Roy Trubshaw on Essex University's DEC PDP 10 mainframe, Mud, which stands for Multi-User Dungeon, one, took the text-based game design of Colossal Cave Adventure and Zork and added the ability to play alongside other participants via internet connection. Wow, in 1978. That's pretty cool. Number eight, Zork from 1977. Written by a group of MIT students in 77, inspired by formative text game Colossal Cave Adventure, Zork built on the burgeoning dungeon exploring genre with a richer narrative and lots of humor. Number seven, Sprint 2, 1976 from Key Games. Overhead-viewed racing games were rife in the 70s, but Atari's sprint titles were the ones I preferred on my childhood jaunts around Blackpool arcades. I don't think I know this one either. Using the 6502 microprocessor that would later power Atari's home consoles, it's an exciting two-player race with breakneck speed, responsive handling, and 12 different circuits to zoom through. Uh, Okay, here's one I know. Star Raiders, and number six from 1979, Atari. Way ahead of its time when coder Douglas Neubauer wrote it for the Atari 800 computer, inspired by Star Wars and old Star Trek text adventures. Number five, Lunar Lander, 1979, Atari. The first moon landing simulation was written by school student Jim Storer in the weeks following the Apollo 11 mission on an old F or P- PDP-8 mini computer. Years later, Atari coder Howard Delman decided to use a similar concept to test Atari's new vector graphics technology and Lunar Lander went into production. The game was never a big hit. As asteroids took off, Atari repurposed Lunar Lander cabs to run the newer title. However, its legacy lives on in titles such as Gravatar and Thrust. Gravatar I know, of course. Thrust I do not. And it remains a design classic in its own right. Number four, Breakout. 76, Atari. Nolan Bushnell wanted a single-player game that could use a similar paddle controller. Uh, Similar to Pong, that is. So he flipped the Pong playfield on its side, replaced the second player with a brick wall, and got Steve Jobs, then an Atari employee, and Steve Wozniak to produce a prototype. Number three, Space Invaders from Taito, 1978. Inspired by Atari's breakout, Space Invaders was the first hit arcade game to cross over into mass cultural consciousness, and it's still there. Its implementation of early shoot-em-up conventions, its iconic alien designs based on various sea creatures, and its sparse perfect soundtrack are part of the DNA of the game industry. From smartphone emojis to street art, Space Invaders will always be the visual symbol of gaming. Number two, Asteroids from 79. Pinpoint sharp vector graphics and brilliant controls tweaked for months by Ed Logg. Made for a uniquely challenging and aesthetically pleasing game that still absolutely stands up today. And the number one best game of the 70s, according to this article, Galaxian from 1979, Namco. Space Invaders got there first. But Galaxian showed us the future of the space shooter genre with its crisp, multicolor graphics, dive-bombing enemies, and twinkling starfield backdrops. Used rudimentary AI to give attacking craft different behaviors, a feature Namco would return to via Pac-Man's Ghosts. A masterpiece in its own right, Galaxian would lead to two superlative sequels, Galaga and Gapless. Alongside Phoenix and Gorf, this timeless trilogy represented the high point of the fixed shooter era before the likes of uh, Xebius, Defender, and Sinistar brought us into the age of scrolling landscapes. More of that in the 80s. All right, these kind of lists are arbitrary, of course. We don't know 
who these people are or how they're rating these games. But if you have thoughts about this list or you have your own list, let me know. I do not have a particular list. When I think of 1970s Atari games, I, like the article seemed to say, think of Space Invaders, Pong, Asteroids, that kind of thing. But as far as a 15 best games list, I don't have one. But if you guys do, let me know. Speaking of ranking things, CBR.com did a list of the first 10 Spider-Man games ever made, ranked. Not all of these games have been good. While some games were up to the task, Spider-Man's earliest games could be unpredictable in terms of quality. Our man Spider-Man, our man Atari Spider-Man rather, comes in at number 10. Spider-Man was loved when it came out, but is too simple for the modern era. Referring to the Atari 2600 entry. From an era back when Parker Brothers still made video games, an Atari 2600 title is from 1982 and goes so far back it was designed by a single woman, Laura Nikolich. Straightforward enough video game, Spider-Man has to climb to the top of a building to stop the Green Goblin. Not bad for its era, but simplistic. Its simplistic design would cause most people playing it 40 years later to lose interest quickly. I disagree, good folks at CBR. I've played the game on the show, and I quite enjoyed it. And I'm not at all simplistic. No need to comment about that. I'll skip most of these because they're not Atari, so who cares? I'll just tell you the number one, according to this list, Spider-Man game was... Spider-Man vs. the Kingpin feels most like Spider-Man from the early era games. Sega CD. Released four times across three years, but it's the last one that's most noteworthy. The Sega CD version takes advantage of the different medium and additional power to provide a game that's not only voiced, but has animated scenes for the story. In the game, Spider-Man not only needs to stop Kingpin from using a nuclear bomb, but save Mary Jane after she's been kidnapped. It's a decent enough game on the Sega Genesis, but the Sega CD version's super superior music gameplay make this feel closer to being a Spider-Man game than any other title of the 80s or 90s, turning it into the definitive Spider-Man game for the era. There you go. If anybody has feelings one way or another about Spider-Man games, let me know. Question! What does Jason say? He says stuff! What does Jason say? What's a stuff? What does Jason say? Or maybe a little stuff! What does Jason say? He says stuff! Jason says stuff and Atari Bites exclusive! This week in Jason Says Stuff, our back and forth this week was sort of a general him telling me a game that I should play and me saying, I don't know what that game is. He mentioned Halo, which I I know what it is, but I haven't played it. Apparently there was a Halo 2600 homebrew in 2010, which I'm not familiar with. Uh, I guess it'll pop up, could pop up sometime in the future of the show. If anyone has feelings about that, let me know. We agreed that being a responsible adult is overrated. To which he added, thankfully video games and Atari Bytes is here to balance the scales. So it was quite a diplomatic week in uh, Jason Says Stuff. Uh, I don't know, perhaps Jason wasn't feeling well. After recording this segment of Jason Says Stuff, Jason said more stuff. So here's the more stuff that Jason said. Dear Atari Bytes. Wow, very formal, Jason. Congratulations on yet another astonishing podcast. This one had it all. The jangle of Bugs' collar, a brief cameo from Henry, and the turbocharged hellish beast known as definitively as Jason Says Stuff, which sets a tone of risk and excitement to the proceedings and forces every element of the show to fire on all cylinders. Yes, profundity in ample non-do-wop globules. 
I applaud the enthusiasm that you gave my story this time, and I feel that the audience was hanging on each word. Very reminiscent of when Orson Welles read War of the Worlds to a frightened but mesmerized radio audience. Somehow I feel all the other video game shows are sobbing uncontrollably at your good fortune and success thanks to the booster rocket known as Jason Says Stuff. New Zealand, once known for sheep and Lord of the Rings, is now on the map as the first furthest outpost of Atari Biters. Yes, Atari Biters are the equivalent of little monsters who follow Lady Gaga or the Swifties that follow Taylor Swift. Um, hold on. Are little Lady Gaga fans really called little monsters? Is that really a thing? Alright. Uh, Gaga, if you're listening, let me know. We all know she listens. Come on. Uh, Jason continues, which of course falls into a more polarized battle between Jason Says Stuffers and Anti-Stuffers. The Anti-Stuffers being the least ambitious and least exciting members of the audience, while the Stuffers are typically the cream of society and the intellectual elites. I would also like to, uh, to note that you made mention of fake news, a rather Trumpian phrase, and this is the second show that mentioned balls and not even the doo-wop slab of monkey gonads type. This was the talcum powder reference, which clearly shows just how risque and madcap the show has become. Yeah, I did throw in a, a talcum powder uh, reference. It just seemed like the thing to do. Jason goes on. Every once in a while, a chef adds an ingredient to a mix that creates not only a new taste, but literally something iconic. I think Jason Says Stuff is that ingredient, and you mentioning my segment as an exclusive is almost thumbing your nose at all the other podcasters who are obviously less fortunate. Um... I don't know that so much thumbing my nose at other podcasters. I think it's more simply acknowledging the reality that you're here and you say stuff and we should just all accept that. Jason goes on. Even Sean has reached a new zenith of success since doing my theme song. His band has added an extra night to their bowling alley concert tour that spans across at least two streets. Very long streets, I might add. Um, I'm not going to speak for Sean here, but... I I suspect uh, whatever the zenith of success for him is, uh, it's probably not this. I'm just going out on a limb uh, with that guess. But, you know, maybe he'll correct me. Jason says, once again, you're welcome. And he has another story. This has kind of become a thing now. The Steeplechase by Jason Edward Schiffman. A calm autumn day, a winding landscape in front of the riders, and nothing but tension amongst the pack as they wait for the starting pistol. Finally, the moment arrives. The explosion of the pistol and then the thunderous claps of a dozen eager horses bring the cacophony of sound to a thunderous crescendo. Mud flies wildly in the air as man and beast race wildly along a treacherous landscape of hills, valleys, and assorted obstacles that can easily spell doom for any rider who is not keenly aware of their existence. My horse, known as the Hellfire Thunderbolt, is an unrelenting force. He easily pushes past the other riders and quickly assumes the lead. We're all crazed with excitement. This steeplechase is known throughout New Zealand, and the winner will become somewhat of a legend. While others might, uh, others may be injured, maimed, or perhaps even killed. I have spent close to a year traversing this countryside. I know every bump, every rock, and every branch along the way. It's about 20 minutes into a roughly 40-minute race, and I am many lengths ahead of all the other riders. I decide to inhale just one relaxed breath and savor my imminent victory. The sound of my competition becomes more and more distant and a series of and a sense of euphoria grips my mind and I feel my adrenaline drift away. 
A moment later, I see the fabric of the horizon break into a grid of spiral helices as large segments of the landscape turn into numbers and complex equations. Suddenly, I'm standing on the precipice of my reality and what can only be described as an endless void. My horse is gone, my city and everything I call the reality has melted away. A moment later, I am alone, like an astronaut floating in space. My feet soon touch a flat, transparent plane. I can now move in any direction. There are light in the distance. As a natural reaction, I walk towards these lights, although I can't seem to tell how far away they are. Strangely, I feel an overwhelming sense of peace, and the how and why of what is happening doesn't even feel particularly urgent. I walk for what feels like hours. Eventually, the road forks. One path is clearly my reality. Actually, a moment before my horse would have won the steeplechase. The other path is a land that is completely alien to me, wondrous, savage, and strangely beautiful. The choice to stay in this netherworld or return to a winter circle now lay at my feet. After a few moments of contemplation, I walked to the alien land and its mysteries. Back in my reality, Hellfire Thunderbolt runs to the finish line at first place without its rider. They will search for me for days. It will become something of legendary tale, and eventually an empty casket will be buried, and the hope of finding me will dwindle. For all eternity I will wander, never again feeling sad, feeling stressed, or worrying about anything either good or bad ever again. I owe my freedom to the steeplechase. Epilogue. In the most real of realities, the rider of Hellfire Thunderbolt was thrown from his horse and died at the scene about 23 million minutes into the race. His family was comforted by the odd smile he had on his face as he left this world and on to the next. Uh, wow, it's kind of a heavy story there, Jason, and I don't mean heavy like horses are heavy. I don't know much about horse racing. I, I'm skeptical whether any horse race is 40 minutes long, so I, there may be some logistical problems with your story. But uh, I, I like the idea of uh, this dude basically dying and that death being presented as a choice between what he knows is reality and some nether world. Um, I like the idea that we don't even really know what's happening. Maybe that's just his brain telling him how it's going to shut down and showing him this image and then lights go out. Or maybe that is really what happens after you die. You go off to this another world. Lots to think about in that story. So, thanks. Before we leave the segment, Jason also commented, Further, you mentioned that you didn't understand why I sent you the mention of the guy barbecuing his dog. Yeah, in last week's Jason Says Stuff segment, I told you everybody that you had sent me the article about this guy uh yeah cooking his dog you're explaining here now that this was in the spirit of this planet sucks which of course i should have realized uh that being the week before jason says nothing i send is random it's all part of a bigger tapestry man jason you're feeling very philosophical this week you got this guy choosing realities you got tapestries I don't know what kind of mushrooms you've been eating, Jason, but pass some over, because you are clearly tapped into some sort of universal truth that, that I'm not aware of. So, thanks as always. This has been... Question! What does Jason say? Say stuff! What does Jason say? What's a stuff? What does Jason say? Or maybe a little stuff! What does Jason say? He says stuff! Jason says stuff in the Dory Bites exclusive! The posting on Facebook for episode 277, Tooth Protectors, also prompted some toothy responses. That's bad. From Jason, who said, I think Tooth Protectors is in the top ten of games most folks never actually played. 
but thanks to the podcast, it may get some love in the emulators. Yeah, I'm not sure that's going to happen, Jason. And then he says, so you might have changed the relevance of this game, or at least you made me want to brush my teeth more often. Well, I guess my work is done here. If I have uh, protected Jason's world from his gingivitis and uh, bad breath, then I've done my good deed for the year. Listener Carl Mead, hi Carl, simply commented, borderline strange game. I gotta tell you, Carl, uh, thanks for the comment, but I think this game steps firmly over the border into strange territory wholeheartedly. Now you can play most all the video games you'd ever want to play. Introducing the Sears Cartridge Telegame System. Over 150 video games, all on cartridges. This cartridge of 27 target games is included, but you can get more cartridges that have tank games, space war games, blackjack, speedway, over 150 video games so far. The Sears Cartridge Telegame System, sold only at Sears. Let's move on to this week's game. This week's game is Steeplechase from Atari 1980. One of the times we did Intellivision Month, which is coming up, by the way, folks, June is Intellivision Month every year, so we'll be talking about that soon. One of the years we did Intellivision Month, we played horse racing, and now, however many years later, we're back to the stables. Can you just smell the horse poop? Steeplechase has a manual, though I'm not entirely sure why, because there's not a whole lot to it, and even the things that you ostensibly can control, you can't really control all that much. Basically, you're just jumping a lot. But they do, for some reason, give you bios about each of the four horses in the race. Although, in the little bit of experience I have with this game, it really doesn't matter. But just for fun, let's introduce you to the horses, shall we? Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. First, you're supposed to turn the power switch off when inserting or removing a telegames cartridge to protect the electronic components and prolong the life of your Sears Video Arcade. All right, now that we've got that out of the way, once you put the cartridge in, you got to turn it back on. Here, I'll wait while you do that. Okay, good. Meet the Video Arcade horses. Welcome to the Video Arcade stables. It's time for you to meet the lively thoroughbreds waiting inside this game cartridge. This spirited bunch of hoofers never miss a race. If you're looking at the, uh, the full manual here, you can see a, quote, wonderful cartoonish drawing of horses shown in their stalls. Everybody seen the back? The purple horse is called Little Dictator. In the lane at the top of the playfield is Little Dictator. Little Dictator has a mean streak that surfaces every now and then. Once after losing a race, he ate the entire grandstands. Wow, that's kind of dark. Mommy, Mommy, where's Dad? Well, he's about to be horse poop, son. Let's go get some cotton candy. The blue horse, I guess, is called Just Missed. The horse in the next lane was aptly named Just Missed because he just missed every race he has ever entered before coming to our stables. Now he's as dependable as a horse could be. He doesn't win every race, but he never misses one. Then we have the red horse, who is called Absent-Minded. Absent-Minded occupies the third lane down. He tends to forget things occasionally. One time during a race, he completely forgot what he was supposed to be doing and ended up, ended up selling programs to the spectators lined up at the rally. The yellow horse is called Lucky Devil. The horse at the bottom lane of the playfield is the pride and joy of the video arcade stables. Lucky Devil is his name. He's become so wealthy from winning races that he now lives at the infamous Horse Heaven Penthouse. At Horse Heaven, he sleeps in a hoof-shaped waterbed, dines regularly on caviar-flavored oats and carrots, and drinks champagne while 
lounging in his Gucci loafers and satin dinner jacket. Wow, that sounds pretty good. I kind of want to do that. So now you know a little bit about the video arcade team of horses. You can go against them in any one of the six games, or you can pick one of them out as your mount. Who knows? You may end up in horse heaven yourself someday. Oh man, don't tease me. The object of the game is to be the first player to advance your horse to the right side of the screen display. Each horse gallops at a given speed from left to right, while the horse gallops hurdles of different size. Approach the horse from right to left. Your task is to jump and clear the hurdles and get your horse to the right side first. As you are jumping each hurdle, your horse actually has no motion from left to right. Whenever you hit a hurdle, your horse loses some horizontal position, distance, while it falls to the ground and gets up. And by the way, that is incredibly cringe-inducing. When you jump and your horse doesn't clear it, he sort of crumples to his knees and it's sort of, ew, I don't want to see that. Thankfully, you know, a little uh, sprite doesn't run out and shoot him, but it is kind of creepy looking nonetheless. As you're jumping each hurdle, your horse actually has no motion from left to right. Okay, I said that already. The more time it takes to clear the hurdles, the more time it takes to reach the right side of the screen. The height of a jump can be set by adjusting your height height indicator bar, which, frankly, I found to be a little bit meaningless. Um, I don't know if it was my paddles, which are not in the greatest of shape, I will admit. Not having, not letting the in height bar go up all the way, but really only seems to go up, up like halfway up the, the distance I would think it would go. I mean, I still won races, so I guess I can't complain too much, but it, there was something weird there. Either it was operator error or it was some technical issue with the game. I don't know. There are four height settings. Each horse has its own height indicator bar. To learn how to adjust the bar and how to control and jump your horse, see using the controller section 3. The speed of the race starts off slow and increases when the, land, when the leading horse, one, gets about a third of the way across the screen, and two, again, when the leading horse gets two-thirds of the way across. Game ends automatically when the game clock reaches three minutes and none of the horses have made it to the right side. All six games can be played by one to four players, if you have three friends, that is. If less than four players pick a horse before the race starts, see using the controllers, the computer will control the other horse or horses. If players want to compete against each other only, they should play against the computer horses in games one and four. In these games, the computer horse's performance rating is poor, so they are essentially out of the race and you are free to race each other. If one or more players... By the way, do you think... Because horses are pretty smart. Do you think that horses think the humans riding them are idiots? They're like, the humans are supposed to be the uh, dominant species on the planet, but I'm the one carrying them around. And they're wearing those dopey hats and and boots and stuff. And they're going, yeehaw, giddy up. I bet the horses just think we're stupid. If players want to compete against each other, only they should play against... Yeah, okay. If one or more players wants to race against the computer, play against the computer's horses in game 2 or 5, good performance rating, and games 3 or 6, excellent rating. Be sure to read Game Variations Section 5 for a complete listing of each game. I played game 1 in the field report. Spoiler, I already recorded the field report. Which I'm now seeing computer performance rating is poor. And the uh, spacing between the hurdles is uniform. I knew the spacing was uniform. Uh, I guess the poor performance rating of the computer explains why I did so well. But you know what? I'm going to take it anyway. A win's a win, right? The game select matrix at the back of the booklet provides a quick breakdown of the game variations for each game number. Can everybody see in the back? Quit grooming your horse. Put the horse's tail down. A horse lifting its tail is a bad thing. You might want to move away. All right. Press down the game select switch to choose a game. As you press the switch, the game number changes on the screen display. 
the game number is located toward the top middle of the screen as shown in figure 1. The game reset switch starts each race. Each player has 4 seconds after you press the switch to press the controller button and get into the race. Each race starts with the sound of a gunshot. The time clock begins counting at the beginning of a race. The clock is located on the screen at the top. All six games can be played by one, two, three, or four players. Games one, two, and three has uniform spacing between the hurdles, meaning the distance between all hurdles is the same, enabling you to establish a rhythm. In game one, the computer horse or horse's racing ability is poor. You don't have to remind me. In game two, the computer's horse's ability is good, and in game three, it is excellent. In games four, five, and six, the spacing between the hurdles is random. But as we all know, there's no such thing as random, right? Everything that happens is all part of the alien overlord's design of the matrix that we live in. In game four, the computer horse's racing ability is poor, good for game five, and excellent for game six. Helpful hints. At first, it may be difficult to focus your attention both on the horse and on the height indicator bar. You may have a tendency to keep your eye on your horse toward the left side of the screen rather than on the bar on the right side. To eliminate this problem when first playing steeplechase, set the height indicator bar to its highest position and leave it there for the entire race. Quite honestly, I don't know why you wouldn't do that. I don't know that it makes all that much difference. This allows you to get the uh, knack of jumping hurdles without having to worry about the bar. Later, when you feel comfortable about jumping, you can switch your attention to the height indicator bar. Naturally, there is more than one method you can use to control your horse and the bar. I prefer blackmail, frankly. I saw you on that hobby horse the other day. You may develop a winning method of your own. Nah, I kind of doubt it. One method is to quickly change your concentration from the horse to the bar and back to the horse. It's really just playing the game, isn't it? The trick here is not to linger too long in the bar and miss the hurdle. That doesn't make any sense. The trick here is not to linger too long on the bar, I think it's supposed to say, and miss the hurdle. Another method you might try is to keep your attention mainly on your horse and your peripheral vision adjust the bar. This method can be especially helpful since you are used to adjusting the controller to move the bar. There you go. All right, and that is how you play Steeplechase from Atari 1980. I'm not rich or famous. I'm not a movie star, rock icon, first responder, nurse, doctor, or anybody else whom we all look up to. I'm just a schnook. Just like Bill, I love to tell stories. Unlike Bill, though, I'm not creative enough to write my own, so I just tell my own real-life stories in this book-read-by-the-author-style podcast, all about life lessons growing up, and every episode, a segment about music. Music that I love, artists that I admire, and sometimes even my own music. You can find Autobiography of a Schnook on all your favorite podcast suppliers, or you can go to schnookpodcast.com. That's S-C-H-N-O-O-K podcast.com. And I firmly believe the good goes around, and I sincerely hope that Autobiography of a Schnook proves to be some good that goes around your way. The Steeplechase Cabinet was a six-player arcade game from Atari, originally released in 75, developed actually by Atari subsidiary Key Games, uh, and simulates a steeplechase-style horse race. It was originally called AstroTurf. All the printed circuit boards still have the name on the board. The game is housed in a custom extra-wide cabinet that six individually colored and lit buttons used to make a player's horse jump. The monitor is a 23-inch black-and-white CRT monitor with six color overlays to make each of the six horizontally stacked lanes match their colored button counterparts. Sounds include a bugle, galloping hoofbeats, and crowd cheers. 
A European version was released by Loen Automaton, Soviet clone of the machine with exact gameplay and graphics, but different cabinet, was called Skotchki, which can be literally translated as horse race. A port for the 2600 was released under the same name in 1980, programmed by Atari and distributed under Sears Telegames label, one of three games to be created by Atari exclusively for the Telegames line. There is an article on ArcadeBlogger.com from four years ago. Uh, This guy named Tony wrote about getting uh, an actual steeplechase cabinet, uh, what that was like, and sort of the, uh, the history of the game, so I would encourage you to go check that out. The article is titled, Atari Steeplechase Weekend Pickup. Woodrain Wonderland reviewed the uh, Video Gems Europe-only 1983 steeplechase and the 1980 Sears Telegame steeplechase. Regarding the Europe-only version, he writes, While I still prefer the paddle-controlled Sears version, the PAL-only steeplechase benefits from a unique, if somewhat frustrating, dual view of the same playfield. The top portion of the screen gives you an overhead layout of the racetrack, including obstacle locations and width. The side view gives you the height of the obstacles. It's almost always okay to jump over water bodies as they're landlocked anyway, but for most barriers you need to consult both maps, an effect that can make you go a little cross-eyed. I like the top map because it often shows the player how to simply avoid an obstacle, allowing you to build up speed, and once your horsey works up a good head of steam, it can really move. Uh, They give the European version a C grade. As for the Steeplechase Sears 1980 version, one of three titles, the others being Stellar Track and Submarine Commander, Atari offered as an exclusive to Sears, which sold to VCS under its own branding. A solid fun game with some realistic horse and rider sprites and a good injection of strategy to boot. The single player experience is kind of a mixed bag. While certainly still certainly fun, I found I could almost always beat the first variation while consistently performing poorly in variations which put my horse at a disadvantage. Steeplechase is best employed in couch competition with human players. He gives that version a B grade. Atari Protoss observes that when Sears, uh, as part of their deal with Atari, wanted it some unique titles of their own, and they got Submarine Commander, Stellar Track, and Steeplechase worked out pretty well because none of those uh, was, it worked out pretty well for Atari because none of those was, quote, destined to become a big seller. In fact, some people claim that these three titles were games that Atari had rejected, and Sears got the leftovers. Atari denied this, but after looking at the titles Sears got, one has to wonder if there isn't a hint of truth. Steeplechase is clearly the best of the lot, The game might not sound exciting, but when there are four players involved, the game really does get exciting. Horse racing games have always been a niche market. Steeplechase was probably a decent seller for Atari, or Sears. The ability to have four simultaneous players was something of a curiosity back then and probably contributed to Steeplechase's success. Uh, Random thought from one of these things I was just reading. Why would the uh, name and development for this game be AstroTurf? Do the horses run on AstroTurf? That sounds more like a uh, football field thing to me. I don't get it. Anyway, stepping back from the video game aspect of this, a steeplechase is an obstacle race in athletics, which derives its name from the steeplechase in horse racing. The foremost version of the event is the 3,000-meter steeplechase. The 2,000-meter steeplechase is the next most common, and the 1,000-meter steeplechase is occasionally used in youth athletics. The event originated in Ireland. Horses and riders raced from one town's steeple to the next. The steeples were used as markers due to their visibility over long distances. Along the way, runners inevitably had to jump streams and low stone walls, separating estates. The modern athletics event originates from a two-mile cross-country steeplechase that formed part of the University of Oxford sports, in which many of the modern athletics events were founded, in 1860. It was replaced in 1865 by an event 
over barriers on a flat field, which became the modern steeplechase. It has been an Olympic event since the inception of the modern Olympics, though with varying lengths. Since the 68 Summer Olympics, steeplechases in the Olympics has been dominated by Kenyan athletes, including the current gold medal streak since 1984 and a clean sweep of the medals at the 92 and 2004 Games. For women, the steeplechase is 3,000 meters, but with lower barriers than men, a distance of 2,000 meters with a shorter water jump was experimented with before the current race format was established. A steeplechase is also, as we know from playing this game, a distance horse race in which competitors are required to jump diverse fence and ditch obstacles. Steeplechasing is primarily conducted in Ireland, the UK, Canada, United States, Australia, and France. It's derived, the name is, from early races in which orientation of the course was by reference to a church steeple, jumping fences and ditches, and generally traversing the many intervening obstacles in the countryside. Modern usage of the term steeplechase differs between countries. In Ireland and the UK, it refers only to races run over large fixed obstacles, in contrast to hurdle races, where the obstacles are much smaller. The collective term jump racing, or national hunt racing, is used when referring to steeplechases and hurdle races collectively, although properly speaking, national hunt races also include some flat races. Elsewhere in the world, steeplechase is used to refer to any race that involves jumping obstacles. The most famous steeplechase in the world is the Grand National run annually at Aintree Racecourse in Liverpool. Since its inception in 1836, the official race was held three years later, which in 2014 offered a prize fund of a million pounds. The game originated, the sport originated in Ireland, as I've said, in the 18th century, as an analog to cross-country thoroughbred horse races. The first steeplechase is said to have been the result of a wager in 1752 between Cornelius O'Callaghan and Edmund Blake, racing four miles cross-country from St. John's Church in Budevent to St. Mary's Church, the Church of Ireland, in Donner Ale, in Cork, Ireland. Most of the earlier steeplechases were contested cross-country rather than on a track and resemble English cross-country as it exists today. The first recorded steeplechase over prepared track with fences was run at Bedford in 1810, although a race had been run at Newmarket in 1794, over a mile with five-foot bars every quarter mile. And the first recorded steeplechase of any kind in England took place in Leicestershire Leicestershire, in 1792, when three horses raced the eight miles from Bartby Holt to Bildersden, Toplow, and back. There are two forms of steeplechasing in the United States, hurdle and timber. Hurdle racing occurs over the national fences, standardized plastic and steel fences that are 52 inches tall. Timber racing is conducted over solid and immovable wooden rail fences that, in the most extreme case, may reach 5 feet high. American jump racing happens in 11 states, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey, and New York. All right, we have bellied up to the trough of verbal oats and gotten our fill. So now, after the break, the chase is on. Watch out for horse apples. I think that's the William Tell overture. I don't know. It's horse racing day. Yeehaw! Giddy all, get along, little doggies. I might be mixing up a few genres there. Uh, anyway, 
We're playing steeplechase. Uh, I have gingerly walked through the field of horse poop to arrive at the uh, at the uh, whatever you start call the start of the race. So I'm going to get the game started. Here we go. I guess I'm the red horse. It's kind of hard to tell. We're using the. I did that on purpose just to make sure I actually was the red horse. I think he's supposed to be the the grumpy one. I don't remember in the little descriptions. Using the paddles for this one. Ooh, there we go. Get along, little doggy. I know there's that height bar. I don't know if it's my paddle or, or the game, but it only really has two settings. Up, which is really only halfway up your lane, and down, which is down there. Um, my paddles are not in the greatest shape, so it might just be my paddle. I don't know why you wouldn't keep your height bar in the highest position the whole time. But, oh well. Uh, the horses look good. They look like horses. There's not much else to uh, recommend this game. I guess that the noise sounds like hooves galloping. Uh, the starter's pistol at the start of the game didn't really sound like much, but oh well. We're at 217. This race will be over in three minutes unless I win it, which I just did. In your face, other fake computer horses. Back to you in the studio. Hey, Atari fans. This is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Cart by Cart podcast. Join Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review cartridge-based games for the Atari's last answer, the 8-bit gaming system, as well as delve deep into their history. Kieran will also introduce everyone to the UK's budget games. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's xegs, the number 8, bit.com. Hey, let's take a break from you listening to me talk so that you can listen to me talk. Hell Serial, very short stories fortified with essential syllables, is the new short story collection from, well, me. Every box, or book, is chock full of bite-sized stories in every genre from sci-fi to fantasy to literary fiction to cheesy spy stories and everything in between. Zombies in Love, Twisted Car Races, and the aforementioned devilish breakfast food are just some of the tasty bites you'll find. Toy surprises? You bet. How about social commentary and the meaning of life? Beats a Dakota ring any day. With both funny stuff and drama, Hell's Cereal gives you the marshmallows and the toasted oat flakes. Oh, in words. Lots of those, too. Pick up Hell's Cereal, very short stories fortified with essential syllables, wherever you'd like to get your books. Not cereal. Here's the thing about Steeplechase. Uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned earlier in the show, but coincidentally, Henry has started taking horse riding lessons for no other reason than he was looking for something new to do, and there was a place that offered the lessons for a reasonable fee. So he's tried it, he's tried it out, he's kind of digging it so far, I mean he's 11, so who knows how long it's going to last, could be forever, could be another two weeks, we don't know. Horses are cool, you know? This game looks good for what it is the horses look really good the movement's good i appreciate the cringeworthy collapse of the horses when you mess up your hurdle but it's also really simple and really repetitive and there's not much to it i think it it would benefit if you had some of your drunk friends 
sitting there playing with you instead of you versus the computer. I acknowledge that, but I'm a podcaster, so I don't have any friends. So maybe my, my view of the game would be higher if I had played it that way as opposed to me versus the computer. Not that I dislike the game. It's just sort of, at the moment, just sort of a meh game to me, frankly. But that's okay because it's still an Atari game. And by definition, that makes it cool. If you guys have thoughts about steeplechase, or about horses, or about anything really, get a hold of me. It's story time on Atari Bites. Yes, it's story, 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 story time. With Bill. This week's story is titled, Steeple Caught. Here is the church, and here is the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. Close the doors and listen to them pray. Open the doors, and they all walk away. Running, leaping, down the ditch, up the ridge. Feet pound, dirt clods like fire tractors. In the distance, the steeple stands high over the horizon. Quentin brushes back auburn locks and wipes the sweat from his eyes with a bit of parchment, which he waves like a flag over his head, if only it was a white flag, so he could give in on this crazy run. He's sucking wind big time. No, must keep moving. His nearest pursuer, a child of six or seven with fangs down to the collar of his superhero pullover, is a good 40 yards back. How the hell did this happen? Quentin isn't out of shape exactly, but he's no athlete. He pulls the necktie from around his neck and tosses it away, fleetingly hoping it will trip up at least one of these creatures chasing him, but knowing it won't. A shout from the trees. There he is! Quentin audibly gasps, costing a few cool points, but no time to worry about that now. He hears the wave approaching. The people are coming. How is he supposed to know? Really, how is he supposed to know? All he did was open a door and look inside at the people. What's wrong with that? He saw the church that was no church, with its congregation of the appropriated, the mislaid, and the damned. Quentin was curious, that's all. So he looked. Where's the harm? The harm was rapidly approaching. Quentin stumbles over a dead hedgehog. Poor bastard, he mutters, struggling to stay upright. An arm shoots out from the trees, the hand seeming full of way too many decorative fingernails for the standard complement of fingers. The hand grasps Quentin's elbow in an icy vice, but Quentin jerks and slams whoever this is hard in the face. Quentin runs on, not looking back. Blood from the injured pursuer's crushed nose dribbles around his laughing lips. He gestures to his compatriots behind him. As one, they scream, Let's get him! Quentin's legs pump harder. He is aware of the sensation of movement, but no longer feels the ground beneath him. A barren rocky quarry now. But still, in the distance, there is that steeple. He can see it there, looming over him. He can see it everywhere, looming over him. Quentin may be hallucinating. Hell, this whole thing might just be a nightmare, though he dare not wish it, even for a moment, lest he let his guard down. He is certain glowing green orbs of consciousness peer down from the belfry, with only the slightest flutter of wings in the cold darkness above. The creature within the steeple waits patiently for Quentin's demise just as it always had. Or, you know, Quentin is imagining it. He thinks this thought and regrets it. He regrets it because the time it takes to think that thought 
is just long enough for the stench of sweaty, enraptured humans to nearly catch him. Ah, 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 Quentin, you nearly blew it, didn't you? Chides a pigtailed old woman from behind him. She really should not be able to run this fast. Quentin's lungs feel ready to burst, but he manages to gasp. Suck it, Granny! The old woman cackles. Hold still then, sonny boy. Quentin's legs pound harder even as pebbles in his shoes burrow deeper into the soles of his feet. Quentin doesn't know how he knows, but he knows nonetheless. If he can just make it to the pier, he'll be all right. His alarm will go off. He'll awaken and this nightmare will be over. Lucid dreaming sucks, he screams. His pursuers cheer. The pier is in sight. The steeple, too, of course. It never moves, yet always moves, to stay in Quentin's field of vision. Beyond lies the foggy ocean of freedom. Quentin's feet register the transition from rocks to wooden planks. Not exactly a foot massage, but he'll take it. He follows the pier out to the water's edge. End of the line. Cornered. The chase is nearly over. The chase is nearly over. And yet, his pursuers do not follow. They have, in fact, dissipated into the fog. I must be waking up, Quentin says. He feels that the sensation of his beagle, Terry, licking his face. Yeah, yeah, Quentin says. Coffee first, then walkies. And that's when Quentin is impaled through the heart by the slender lead needle spire launched from the steeple, always in Quentin's view. His lifeless body tumbles into the ocean. The parchment, once clenched in his fist, drops from dead fingers into the water and floats out to sea, never to be read again. Huh. Guess Quentin wasn't dreaming. Hi, this is 8-Bit Rocket, Jeff Fulton, from the Into the Vertical Blank Generation Atari podcast. And you are listening to the incomparable William Pepper and his wonderful stories of the game within a game on the Atari Bytes podcast. When you are done here, come visit us in the Vertical Blank. Now, back to Bill. And that's our show. Thanks to Kevin McLeod and Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball, Pinball Spring. Thanks to Sean Courtney for the Storytime theme and the Jason Says Stuff theme. Chase down Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review of the show. Email the show at AtariBytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on our Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at AtariBytes or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. Also, check us out on Instagram. Don't forget, you can always call us. I'm never going to answer the phone nothing personal, but you are welcome, nay, invited to leave a voicemail, 563-265-1978. Leave a message about pretty much anything you want, and I'll probably play it on the show. Check out the website, www.carnivalofgleecreations.com. Over there, you're going to find all the information and links that you need about this podcast, my other show, it's a podcast, Charlie Brown, writing projects that I've done, places that you can get my books, including Hell Serial, very short stories fortified with essential syllables, all of that over there at carnivalofgleecreations.com. Consider supporting the show. Consider supporting the show on our Patreon project, the Atari Bytes uh, page over on patreon.com. You can sign up. You can help keep the show in business, which I appreciate. You can also keep an eye on existing patrons, Michael Tyler, Jose Cazeta, Sean Courtney, M. West, Jim Goble, Patrick McCarthy, Jeremy L., and Jason Schiffman, who need some monitoring, frankly. 
Uh, thanks to all of them for supporting the show. All right, we're just about out of here. All that's left is to tell you next time on Atari Bytes. Last week, as the episode was going out, I was at an event called QuadCon, which is a one-day sort of nerdy event, for lack of a better shorthand. Um, the one I went to was at a new venue, um, so it was not, and there was quite as big an event as it might usually be. It was mostly a vendor hall with um, with a costume, or excuse me, a cosplay contest. Uh, some of the that I've been to um, are not huge. These are not like um, Midwest Gaming Classic scope events, but uh, they have more tend to have more uh, celebrity guests to a certain degree. Again, not Midwest Gaming Classic level, but um, but they're getting there. I mean, it's a growing event. They they do these in different areas around where I live. Strike that. They do that uh, in many areas uh, around the state. They do this in many areas around the state. So, uh, and I went to one. I was promoting the podcast, of course. Uh, promoting the podcast, of course. Uh, it's a podcast, Charlie Brown, selling books. And while I was, I was sitting there, I had some thoughts about, um, you know, cons and nerdery and how Atari and you know, sort of the older, um, sort of collectible pop culture, um, fandoms and, and that kind of thing, where they kind of fit in with newer, old nerdery, if that makes any sense. I'm going to work that out more in my head, uh, and talk about that more next week. Um, I'm going to mix up the format a little bit. Not going to play a game next week. Um, I, I may give you a short story or some bad poetry or something, but I'm not going to, not going to do a game. I'm going to talk about the con I went to, the cons I've been to in particular, um, and sort of nerdery and where Atari fits in with that in the 21st century, at least from my point of view. I also, uh, at the event, I had a t-shirt giveaway contest go- contest going. I, uh, I made up basically Mad Libs for Pac-Man, uh, a, a little Pac-Man-inspired Mad Lib. And uh, I invited people who wandered over to my booth to fill one out and return it to me. And then uh, next week, I'm going to read those on the show. Uh, Hopefully, it'll be entertaining. Honestly, at this point, I haven't read through them. I don't know how good or bad they are. But we'll find out together next week. And I'm going to pick one of those. And I'm going to send them an Atari Bytes Go Play Some Old Games They've Missed You t-shirt. So that's the thing that's going to happen. So we'll do that next week. We'll talk about cons. We'll talk about nerdery or the, the life of Atari, and maybe how much more life Atari has, for that matter. If you have thoughts about any of that stuff, hit me up on social media, send me an email, uh, and I will share your comments on the show next week, or honestly, whenever you get them into me. Alright, so until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you.
Thank <laughs> you.